0: Well, once again, good morning, and it's good to see you all again. And I think of all the words in the English language that can really stop people in their tracks and arrest their attention, somewhere near the top of that list would be the subject of our text this morning slavery. That's right, as we come to Titus chapter 2, verses 9 through 10 this morning. We come to see Paul address slaves in relation to their masters. Slavery itself is a dreadful topic. It's stunning to think that just 130 years ago in our own country, it was still widely practiced. The slave trade and practices of our nation were abominable. They were some of the worst in all of world history. And being so recent in our nation's psyche when When we read the Bible today, we can't sometimes help but transpose our understanding of slavery onto the ancient world's understanding of slavery. But slavery in the ancient world had its share of differences. For one, the Roman world was full of slaves. It's estimated that at times there were upwards of one-third of of the population were slaves. That's huge. One-third. One-third. And contrary to medieval Europe and American slavery, ancient Roman slavery wasn't based on race. Most slaves were simply prisoners of war. Others became slaves through debt they could not pay. Some were sold into slavery, some were born into slavery. All in all, as time went on, slavery became an essential part of the Roman society and economy. As you can imagine, though, some instances of brutality existed. Some slaves were poorly treated by their masters, beaten, some even killed. And any time you have something as wicked as slavery itself, you're going to have abuses of, of it. However, many slaves were treated well in the ancient world. Many were given household responsibilities, and, and some actually, being prisoners of war, they were more educated than their masters, and so they were put in charge of the household Many were farmers, but domestic slaves could be found working as barbers, butlers, cooks, hairdressers, maids, nurses and teachers, secretaries, seamstresses, accountants, and even doctors. Many slaves were treated as members of the household, and some were even set free. Furthermore, while at first Roman law did not protect slaves, later it did. Slaves were protected by Roman law from harsh treatment and they could appeal to the court system if they were harshly treated. So that's just a a brief snapshot of slavery in the ancient Roman world, which, as you know, is the world of the New Testament. It kind of begs the question, though, what does the Bible say about slavery? I mean, if it really was as pervasive as, as we think then surely the biblical writers have something to say about it. And indeed they do. They have much to say about it. Perhaps the most familiar verse comes in Ephesians chapter 6. Why don't you turn there? We'll start there this morning. Ephesians chapter 6 before we get back to Titus chapter 2. So turn there with me. Ephesians chapter 6. section of scripture referred to as the household code, power Speaks to husbands and wives, parents and children. And now he talks to slaves and masters. And let's just take a look at one of the more familiar passages addressing slavery in Scripture Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. He says, Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ. Not by way of eye service, as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. With good will, render service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. And masters, do the same things to them, and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. It's pretty interesting here Paul clearly addresses slaves and then the masters but he doesn't really comment on slavery itself, the institution of slavery itself. and in fact, if you look at every single passage that intersects slavery in the New Testament you'll find the same thing. The Bible does not address the institution of slavery itself. You're not going to find a charge to slaves to rise up and fight for their freedom, or even a charge to masters to release all of their slaves out of goodwill and justice. The Bible does not comment on slavery itself, but simply recognizes that it exists, recognizes that it was a part of the fabric of society at the time, and therefore opts to address masters and slaves themselves. Now, you might question this. Why doesn't the Bible react harder to slavery? I mean, if God is righteous, why doesn't he come out in Scripture and condemn the institution of slavery? Those are good questions. Those are valid questions to ask. In fact, you should be asking those types of questions and searching for their answers in Scripture. That's how you come to a better understanding of God and scripture. So I figured, as we get started this morning, before we get into Titus two, let's ask those questions. Why does the Bible take this approach to slavery? Someone answered this question by pointing out the differences in slavery. As we talked about, Roman slavery was not American slavery. It had nothing to do with racism, and it did not mean a total lack of freedom. Some would say that ancient slaves were closer to servants or employees than traditional slaves. And there's actually a lot of truth to that that is, in a large degree, true. But that's not a complete answer. Others would point out that the Bible doesn't tear down slavery because slavery is just a type of authority structure and God is not opposed to authority structures. After all, they would argue, there's no such thing as absolute freedom. Nobody is free to do whatever they want. Everybody answers to someone, to some degree. So they would say, slavery, it's not a problem of type, but of degree. In other words, some would argue, submission to the government, or even submission to an employer, can be construed as types of slavery. You're not free to do exactly as you wish, and it is God's will for you to obey your superiors, And yeah, I think there is some truth to that response. God does tell us to submit to even highly oppressive governments, and some could construe that as a form of slavery. The justification then is that the Bible is opposed to the injustices of slavery, but not this master-slave relationship itself. But I think overall there's a deeper, there's a more accurate answer than what people have proposed. Why doesn't the Bible... Outright attack the institution of slavery. Because the institution of slavery is not man's ultimate problem. New Testament writers are not interested in tearing down human institutions because they're not the root cause of man's problem. So what is? What is the root cause of man's problems? It's the heart. It is the sinful and wicked heart of man. The wickedness of slavery, it's merely an expression of the wickedness found in man's own heart. If you tear down slavery like a weed, some other evil expression will just take its place. John MacArthur in his commentary, I think he really hits that nail on the head here. Listen to what he says. He writes, quote, "...the issue is always the heart of man." Which, when wicked, will corrupt the best of systems, and when righteous, will improve the worst. If men's sinful hearts are not changed, they will find ways to oppress others, regardless of whether or not there is actual slavery. On the other hand, spirit filled believers will have just and harmonious relationships with each other, no matter what system they live under. Man's basic problems and needs are not political, social, or economic, but spiritual. End quote. Now, I, I think that's just right on. And knowing what we know about man's depravity, that makes perfect sense. From the perspective of the New Testament writers, abolishing slavery is not going to solve man's sin problem. Just even in countries with no slavery, like America today, guess what? Wickedness is still everywhere. It's pervasive. All these countries that abolished slavery, which is the right thing to do, don't get me wrong, they're still extremely wicked. Why? They haven't gotten to man's heart problem. <laughs> Rather, if you want to change a person's eternal destiny, which is the most important thing, and at the same time make society better, you have to go after the wicked heart of man. And that's what the Bible does. That's what the writers of Scripture focus on. Hence, the direct instruction to the slaves and the masters as they are. God wants slaves and masters to display Christ by treating those above them and below them with respect, dignity, and love. And just imagine, wouldn't that totally transform, if not outright abolish slavery itself, without the need for something like a civil war? And that's exactly what happened in several early Christian communities, Another commentator, Hendrickson, he writes, The grace of Christ, working from within, outward, would become a penetrating leaven, tending to transform the whole lump, End quote. With this brief introduction in mind, now we can finally approach a text like Titus 2, verses 9 through 10, and rightly understand not only what God has to say about something like slavery, but also why he has to say it what he has to say. And it is still so important that we do rightly understand such passages in Scripture. Because although we do live in a country without slavery, thankfully, we all are still subject to superiors. Are we not? Every single person. We all still have those above us that we must submit to, be it the government or an employer or whatever. And so the application here, the application of the text to the For instance, the employer-employee relationship, it's perfectly valid. We have much to learn from what God has to say here. And furthermore, let me remind you that in God's eyes, guess what? Every single person on the planet is a slave. You're all slaves. Everyone. This is a helpful perspective to keep in mind when we're talking about such a subject. In God's eyes, everyone is either A slave to sin or a slave to righteousness. They're either a slave to Satan or a slave to Christ. There's no other option, and everyone is covered. The only question is, who's going to be your master? And let me tell you, you want Christ as your master. Christ so immensely loves you and cares for you, protects you, guides you. You want him to be your master. Sin wants to see that you have eternal death. Christ wants to see that you have eternal life. He is a good master. But nevertheless, like I said, everyone fits into this category of slave. It is, or we do. Whether it's to Christ, or to sin, or to your employer, or to government, or whatever. Titus 2, 9-10, it applies to all of us. So let's go ahead and turn our attention now to Titus chapter 2, verses 9 through 10, as we continue to work through this book, Titus. And let's see what we can learn from God's word. So let's read this text now, Titus 2, 9 through 10. Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. Paul shifts gears. He's been talking to the older and the younger generation, speaking to spiritual leaders. Now he's turning attention toward slaves, bond servants in the NASB. The Greek word is doulos, and it just means slave, straight up, slave. This word actually it just so happens to be Paul's favorite word for introducing himself. And back in Titus chapter 1, verse 1, the, the first verse, he introduces himself as Paul, a doulos of God, a slave of God. And same thing in so many other letters. It's, it's his favorite way to introduce himself because he knows that he too is a slave. You may be wondering though, why does Paul even bring this up? Why even cover the topic of slavery and, and talk to the slaves on the island of Crete, which is where Titus was ministering? Why even bring this up? You have to first understand the Roman Empire was very nervous when it came to their slaves. Like we said at times, there was up to a third of the population that were slaves. That was a huge risk to the empire. If those slaves ever gathered together and revolted, it would be bad news for the Roman Empire. And that happened. Surely you've heard the name Spartacus. He was a Roman slave who got his freedom and gathered together several other slaves, revolted. They formed an army. They defeated several Roman legions, and they almost got to Rome before they were put down. There's another large-scale rebellion on the island of Sicily as well. And the Romans, they dealt severely with these uprisings, but they always feared another Spartacus. They always had that fear. They always feared another rebellion from the slave population. The Roman philosopher Seneca, he tells of this proposal that made it to the Roman Senate. They proposed, you know, let's let's make all the slaves wear this article of clothing that will distinguish them from the crowd. That way we can know who they are whenever we're walking around town. Let's make them wear this special clothing. But once the senators realized that this might actually result... In the slaves becoming conscious of their own strength and numbers, they abandoned the idea. And she shows you how scared they were. Now, here's the point. Any person or any new religion that even seemed to support slave uprisings would be severely dealt with by the Roman Empire. So now, do you understand why Paul so often addresses slaves and masters? The last thing he wants is for this brand new thing called Christianity to be falsely labeled as being anti-Rome. More and more people were becoming Christians. More and more slaves were becoming Christians. And Paul wanted to make sure that they were honoring God by submitting to their masters and submitting to the government. It's one thing to be persecuted for following Christ. It's another thing to be persecuted for rebelling against the authorities. And Paul wanted to make sure that the churches were avoiding the latter. And this all still applies to us. And however, today, especially in America, we do not relate to this slave master relationship well. We're uncomfortable with it, and rightly so given our terrible past with it. But the principles in this text, they really do apply to everyone under authority. Whether you're a servant or an employee or just a citizen. This applies. So true, you may not be an actual slave in first century Rome, but God still wants you to respect and obey those in authority over you. And it's a key part of your testimony in Christ. So how will you act in the world? How will you live? How will you represent Christianity? The world is watching you under a microscope. You know that. They see how you respond to difficult situations, so what are you going to show them? And especially as they observe you in relation to your authorities, are they going to see someone who reflects Christ? Appropriately, then, from Titus 2 9 through 10, let, let's observe five marks of godly servants so that you can best represent God in the world. As we make our way through the rest of these verses, let's look at five marks of godly servants so that you can best represent Christ in the world. And I chose that word servant on purpose because I want to highlight the principle behind these verses, namely that this is how God expects all those to live who are in service to another. Therefore, five marks of godly servants. Number one, what's the first thing he tells them? They are submissive. They are submissive. Verse 9. Urge bond slaves to be what? First thing, to be subject to their own masters in everything. First there to be submissive. Now, if you don't like the idea of submission, probably better to get used to it because everyone is called to submit. Everyone. Titus chapter 3 verse 1 says, Remind them, everyone, to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient. Romans 13, 1 says, Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Or 1 Peter 2, verse 13 says, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Just all these verses across the board saying, Guess what? If you're alive, You have to submit to someone. God calls you to submit to your governing and ruling authorities. So submission is an across-the-board thing that we all have. So if you have any authority figure above you, it doesn't matter if it's slave master, employer, employee, government citizen. God expects you to submit yourself to that authority. Also notice from our verse, when you do submit, it's not for your sake. It's not for your boss's sake. It says it's for the Lord's sake. When you submit, this is how you are submitting to God. This is how you are honoring God. He wants you to honor Him by honoring those who are above you. You might be thinking, though, what? You don't know my boss. You don't know my boss. What if if you have a, a wicked boss? I mean, do you still have to submit then? Well, in our text, it does say in everything. But let me show you another verse. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. It's pretty close to the end of your Bible. And here's another key verse where Peter now takes a turn at addressing slaves and masters. 1 Peter 2. Look at verse 18. Servants, Be submissive to your masters with all respect. And then look what he says next. Not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. So he's saying, guess what? Submit to them all. It doesn't matter if they're good or wicked. Verse 19. For this finds favor if, for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if... When you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience. But if you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure, this finds favor with God. So that's the point. Look, you have a a greater master in heaven. And God tells you to submit to any boss you have, for example, good or bad, simply because that's how you submit to God. That's how you find favor with God. Now, of course, your obedience to your boss ends when they tell you to sin or when they tell you to disobey God. Then you have to obey your boss in heaven first and foremost. But other than that, look, regardless of how they treat you, you are to obey your authority, your boss, your superior. In the ancient world, slaves, they were seen as an extremely wicked and untrustworthy group. Society expected them to be rebellious and disobedient and stiff-necked. So how much do you think they would have stood out if they were instead submissive and obedient? And not just in the things they wanted to do, but in everything. If that were the case, their actions would speak volumes. And it's the same today. I'm probably telling you nothing new here, but guess what? Someday, you're going to have a boss who's not going to care about you. They don't care about you. They don't want to get to know you. They just want you to do your job. Probably not surprising to some of you. He or she is going to be harsh with you because they're used to dealing with disobedient and unruly workers. In fact, they expect their employees to be lazy and unruly. You know what they're not expecting? Their employees to be submissive and joyfully obedient. So how do you think you can most impact such a boss? It's by submitting, by doing what he or she says, by honoring and respecting them. Sooner or later, they'll take notice. They'll get caught off guard because that's not how people normally act. They don't normally submit so joyfully to their authorities. And when that day comes, that day will be your window for the gospel. But even if that day doesn't come, guess what? This is simply how you please God. Remember, at the end of the day, if you have... If you're having trouble submitting to your boss, in reality, you're having trouble submitting to God. Your submission issue is with God, not your boss. So will you submit to God and live how he tells you to live? Servants of all type must be obedient and submissive to those who are in authority over them. This is the first mark of godly servants. The second mark... Back in Titus chapter 2, they are pleasing. Secondly, now, they are pleasing. If you look again at verse 9, he says, Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters and everything. And then secondly now, to be well-pleasing. To be well-pleasing. It's a present tense verb. So he's saying continually be well-pleasing or acceptable to those who are above you. Not only should you be concerned with being pleasing to God, God also wants you to be concerned with being pleasing to your earthly superior. So therefore, you should work hard. You should do what's asked of you. You should be pleasing to your boss, so to speak. And this was so important for Christian slaves because, if you remember, they were looked on with the greatest of suspicion. But by being submissive and pleasing to their masters, Christian slaves would defang the attacks against Christianity, namely that it incited rebellion against authority. You have to remember how you are at work has such a huge impact on what others think about you and Christ and Christianity and the gospel. You're taking God's name. You're calling yourself a Christian. So when they look at you, they're judging Christ and Christianity. So what are they going to see? I've heard of Christian businessmen who will only hire Christians because they're the best workers, and most faithful, faithful and loyal. But I've also heard of businessmen who will never hire Christian workers because they are the laziest workers taking advantage of their boss's kindness. The point is this. Don't give Christ a black eye at work. Don't give the image of Christ a black eye at work. Even at work, let people see how Christ has truly changed you for the better. And you do this by being pleasing. By being pleasing to those who are in authority above you. This term for well-pleasing that we have here, it's used several times in the New Testament, but every time it's used, it's in relation to God. Every single time. For instance, 2 Corinthians 5.9 says, Therefore, we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. To be pleasing to God. In fact, in Titus 2.9, it seems to be the only place in the whole Bible where this word may not be used in relation to God. But for that reason, I actually think Paul is intending a little double entendre here. In other words, he's urging slaves to be well-pleasing to their earthly masters, but at the same time, to be well-pleasing to their heavenly master. You catch that? You should aim to be pleasing to your earthly boss, we should have as an underlying motivation to really be pleasing to your heavenly boss. Here's how it works. Every time you submit to your boss, for example, you're submitting to God. Every time you obey your boss, you're obeying God. Every time you please your boss, guess what? You are pleasing God. That's how he wants you to live. Maybe you need some proof. Well, let me show you. Colossians chapter 3. This verse worth showing you. Turn to Colossians chapter 3 just backwards a little bit. And then look at verse 22. Colossians 3, 22. Here's yet another verse where slaves and masters are addressed. And see what this one says. Colossians 3, verse 22. Slaves, in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth. Not with external service, as those who, what? Merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord, rather than for men. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. What's that passage saying? It's just crystal clear. Remember, you serve Christ. You have another master in heaven whom you really serve. So your goal is to seek to be pleasing to Christ and you accomplish that in the context of work, for example, by being pleasing to your boss. The point of that passage is, remember, you have two bosses. One on earth. And one in heaven. And you remember which one whom you truly serve. If you have trouble with this, just think about this. How would you work if your boss was always watching you? Just pretend 24-7 while you're at work, your boss is over your shoulder. He's just shadowing you and watching you work the whole day. Everything you do, he's just watching you. How would you work? How would that change the way you work? Would it change what you look at on the computer? Would it change how you spend your time or how long you take a break? How you handle the cash register? You know, however, that your boss is way too busy to ever do something like that, to watch you 24-7. But Christ isn't. Christ is not too busy to watch you work. So remember whom you truly serve and please Him by being pleasing to those who are in authority over you. Our second mark here, be pleasing to your bosses. They are pleasing. Third mark of godly servants, number three, they are respectful. From Titus two, for end of verse nine, they are respectful. He says, Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters and everything, to be well pleasing. Thirdly, he says, not argumentative in the NASB, not argumentative. In the positive, this is being respectful. In the negative, this is not being argumentative. It's a present active parsable. It's talking about a characteristic of you. This should be something you're known by, namely by not being argumentative. You don't speak against authorities. So this is a picture of the guy or the girl who, that was mouth off. You tell him to do something and you're always greeted by an argument or some excuse or some way where they're trying to get out of their work. It's not talking about someone who's standing up for their convictions and defending their convictions. No. This is someone who's just trying to get out of a little work. And as you can imagine, this is the opposite of what it looks like both to be submissive and pleasing to your boss. You just just put yourself in the shoes of your boss for for a second, or, or a boss. Pretend you've got this unruly employee, and you know every time you tell them to do something, you get an argument. It's like they try and convince you that they shouldn't do what what you're telling them to do. You have to stand there for a minute and just basically prove to them why they have to do what you as the boss are telling them to do. It doesn't seem right. It's like you have to convince them to do their job. They always tell you they're busy. They always have an excuse. But you see them wasting plenty of time at work so, how long are you going to put up with such a worker? How long until you just fire such a disrespectful worker? And then, what if you learn they were a Christian? What a stain for the cause of Christ. There was this guy at my old engineering job, and he was exactly like this. He had his job, he had his task to do, but anytime anyone Told him to go above and beyond, or to help out, or do something else. You got the argument. Actually worked alongside this guy's boss, and the boss hated him, at least as an employee, because well, who would want to work with such an argumentative person, such a disrespectful worker? So, how many of you are like this, disrespectful and argumentative worker? Is this is this you? When your superior tells you to do something, do you argue? Do you try and weasel your way out of some responsibility? And if so, you need to consider your witness. You need to consider your boss in heaven. And therefore, thirdly, do not be argumentative, but rather be respectful. Let's move on to our fourth mark of godly servants. They're honest. Number four, we're getting to verse 10 now. They're honest. He says they're not to be pilfering, verse 10, not pilfering. If you're not familiar with the word pilfer, it pretty much just means to steal. But it's stealing in very small amounts over and over again. That's pilfering. The best example of this is Judas Iscariot. Do you remember the story? Mary, in John chapter 12, Mary comes and she anoints Jesus before his death with this very costly perfume. Remember that? She kind of breaks it, pours it over him. And it says that this perfume is worth an entire year's wages. You guys, just just imagine saving up for a year just to buy your wife of one bottle of perfume. Probably doesn't seem worth it. For Christ, it was worth it, but Judas was not happy with this. And he complained and he said, Why wasn't this perfume sold and given to the poor? Oh, he's so righteous. He's just looking out for the poor, right? But no, John 12, 6 says, Now, he said this, Judas, not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief, and he had the money box, and he used to pilfer what was put into it. Judas kept the money. In hindsight, not a good idea, but at the time, he was the keeper of the money, and a dollar here, a dollar there into his own pocket, it's pilfering. And stealing was a major problem amongst slaves in the ancient world, because they oftentimes had full access to their master's household. And they could easily steal small things that nobody would notice. And every now and then, don't you hear a story in the news about some maid getting arrested because he or she was caught stealing some jewelry from their employer? It still goes on. But nonetheless, still relevant for today. Just think about how many people work a cash-registered job, for instance. And just... Just how easy it would be. Just, just sneak a 20. Sneak a 20. No one would ever know. Or just imagine this. If you could somehow steal a dollar an hour, that's like getting a dollar an hour raise. That's pretty good, right? And maybe you've never done this, and you would never do steal from work like that, but there are plenty of ways to steal from work these days. Do you ever lie on your timesheet? Maybe you report that you worked longer than you did. You say you got in at 7 when you really got in at 7.20. Took a 40-minute break when you were really supposed to take a 30. That's stealing. That's stealing time and money from your employer. And it doesn't belong to you. Or have you ever used company goods for yourself? Take office supplies home, use the company car more than you should, make long-distance calls. That one's kind of before the era of cell phones. Any time, any way you take time, money, and resources from your work, without approval, you're pilfering. You're stealing. Just remember, again, you're trying to please your heavenly boss. That's what you need to keep coming back to. How can I work in such a way where I'm pleasing not just my earthly boss, but my heavenly boss? So are your actions pleasing to him? If you need some help, just practically ask yourself, Okay, should I do this, or should I spend this time if my boss knew about it? If your answer is, I probably shouldn't do that if my boss was here, yeah, you probably don't want to do that. Probably not a good idea. Godly servants, godly workers are those who are honest, and certainly do not steal. Now we can finish up our last mark, number five, last mark of godly servants. They are faithful they are faithful. In verse 10, he says, not pilfering. And then lastly, showing all good faith. Showing all good faith, which is in stark contrast to the ultimate faith, unfaithfulness, which is stealing. Here, the godly servant shows all good faith. They're faithful, reliable, trustworthy. This means you show yourself to be completely faithful in goodness. You're not going to defraud your employer. You're not going to seek the harm of their business. You're going to do what's best for them. This is where you are dependable and reliable, even when you're not being watched. And trust me, this is what employers want. And with Angel's wedding planning business, that we started to get us through the seminary years, came to the point where we needed to hire some help, hire some employees And trust me, the most important thing is faithfulness. Just give me someone who's faithful and I can work with them. The same thing applies in ministry. Just give me someone who's faithful. We said a couple of times now, slaves back then had a terrible reputation. I mean, think about this. Why do you think Paul has to urge slaves to be submissive and faithful? It's because they weren't being submissive and faithful. Why do you think he has to remind them to not argue and steal? It's because they were arguing and stealing. It's what they were known for. And so all the more so, believing slaves had a huge opportunity to really stand out. Not by rebelling, but by obeying. Not by slacking off, but by proving themselves to be faithful. That's how they would witness to Christ. By living according to this standard, they could really display Christ to their masters. In fact, look how verse 10 ends. Look at the end of verse 10 Titus 2. He says, "...so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect." This really goes back to all of verses 9 and 10. He's saying, "...those who serve must be submissive, pleasing, respectful, honest, and faithful." Why? "...so that they will adorn..." The doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. And this is huge. This is getting your motivation right. You're not trying to be a good worker to impress your boss, get a raise, get a promotion. That's not your ultimate goal. What is? You're trying to honor God here and be pleasing to Him. Do you really believe that? Is that what ultimately drives you at work, deep down? And if not, this is what what needs to be your motivation. Specifically, verse 10 says that through being a godly servant, you are adorning the doctrine of God. You're adorning it. To adorn here means to place things in order or arrange them such that they are better. Word was used of arranging jewels in in a necklace or a crown just to really bring out their beauty. And the word itself in the Greek is cosmeo, which you can probably guess what word in the English we get from this. Cosmetics. And it's a great illustration. The point is, when you live as a godly worker, it's like you're putting cosmetics on the gospel. You're adorning the doctrine of God. You're drawing out its natural beauty. You're making it more attractive. The gospel is not adorned or made attractive by church programs, or building projects, or mega campuses. The gospel is adorned by the purity and holiness of God's people. That's what really adorns the gospel, and that's what this verse is saying. Just as your hypocrisy can repel unbelievers, your consistency, your truthfulness can attract unbelievers as well. Your presentation of the gospel in your workplaces must be enhanced and adorned by the godly behavior of your lives. What's that behavior look like? What does that behavior look like? Well, we've already covered it. It looks like being submissive, pleasing, respectful, honest, and faithful. That's your motivation. And that motivation for Christian living is no small thing to grasp. It's a big deal. To get your motivation right. In fact, I want to show you this from Titus 2. So if you're not already, flip back to Titus 2. As we finish up here, here's the thing. We've been going through Titus 2 at a snail's pace. I mean, verse by verse, really slow, unpacking each little section. The problem is when you do that, sometimes you can miss the bigger picture. And there is a bigger picture here that I want to show you. you know, Titus 2, we've seen all these lists, list after list, the older and the younger. Male and female, spiritual leaders, now workers, all these lists, all these standards of Christian living, all these portraits, as I've called them, you can kind of get lost in them and you can forget, why are these even here? I mean, what's, why should I live like this? What's the big deal? What's our motivation? Well, in Titus 2, there are two motivations for why you should live like this, why you should be paying attention and living like this. What are they? Well, the first one comes in verse 1. Look at Titus 2, verse 1. Paul instructs Titus. He says, But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. And the rest of this chapter are the things fitting for sound doctrine. So the point is, this is just what it looks like to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Have you been called? Have you been saved? This is what it looks like to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. This is simply what a transformed life in Christ looks like, the rest of these verses. So that's the first motivation. There's a second motivation, though. If you're observing, you have noticed that at the end of each section here in Titus 2, Paul gives a so that statement. See the word so that? It's a purpose statement. Let me show you. Verses 2 through 5, you remember them, He's talking about the men and the women, the older and younger. He says, They should be godly. They should live godly lives. Why? Why should they? Verse 5, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. You see that? Same thing, verses 6 through 8. Here he's like, young men should be godly, Titus, spiritual leaders, you should be godly. You should live this way. Why? Why should they care? Verse 8, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Guess what? Verses 9 and 10, same thing. Workers now, servants, slaves, you should be godly. Why? What's the big deal? Verse 10, so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. Do you see the pattern? You catch it? This is what's at stake with your life. With all these lists we've been studying, and with all these standards of Christian living, the church's witness and testimony are at stake. And that testimony is so important because people need to know. They need to know God. They need to know the gospel. And they need to see the reality of God and the gospel lived out in your life. Not everyone is going to believe in the gospel. But don't let them point to you and say, see that person over there? That's my reason for not believing. Don't let that be you. So be the godly older man or younger man. Be the godly older woman or younger woman, as we've studied. Be the godly worker. Why? So that the world may see us. They see the differences in our lives, and and they want that. They want to know what makes us different. We know that salvation of the lost, it's ultimately up to God, but He directly gives us the responsibility to share this, to witness this, and to live it out. So be the godly worker. Be the godly slave for God's sake. This is how we please God our Savior and his true children want to be pleasing to him. So consider what we've learned today, what it looks like to be a, a godly servant. Make this a part of your life. Make the changes you need to conform your life to this pattern so that you might please God and show the world the attractiveness Of the gospel. That's what it's about. Be a good servant. Be a good slave of Jesus Christ in this life so that you can hear those faithful words in the next life. Do you remember them? Well done, that good and faithful slave. Let's pray. Father God, we do indeed pray and we do indeed long to hear those words when our eyes shut in this life and they open in the next, well done, thy good and faithful servant. Well done, thy good and faithful slave. We, we want to hear those words. Lord, enable us to be the men and women, the, the workers, the servants, the slaves you want us to be. We are all slaves of Christ and we are thankful for that. You've redeemed us out of slavery to sin and you have transferred us to the kingdom of your son and made us his slaves. We praise you for that. Help us not to live as good slaves. Far be it from us for being the wicked slave, the unruly one, Lord. But as we see this this pattern in Titus 2, may it be our lives. Pray for the members of Breen Bible Church that they would be good slaves, that they would be good servants, that they would be good workers. I pray for all the people that are impacted by us at this church in the world, that they would just see us and they would know something is different about us that they would want to come to know the God that we serve, to find out what makes us so different. Lord, we look to you for this. May you help us in our pursuit of godliness, to be godly men and women, godly workers. But may we always look to be pleasing to you, our our boss who is in heaven. In your name we pray. Amen.